You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So today's guest doesn't really need an introduction, and I could probably spend the entire time that we have allotted for this interview to just speaking about his work. We are on the phone with Adam Grant. I've been waiting for this one for quite a while. Adam, as many of you may know, is an organizational psychologist. He is Wharton's top-rated professor for six straight years. He's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. And he has written or co-authored three New York Times bestsellers, Give and Take, Option B, which he wrote with Sheryl Sandberg, and Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. You may have seen his TED Talks. More than 11 million people have in two years. And he's out with a new TED original podcast called Work Life. Adam, welcome. Wow. Thank you, Jean. That was uh, extremely generous, and I'm pretty sure I won't live up to any of it. Oh, I'm sure you'll live up to every bit of it. So I'm a Penn grad, a very proud Penn grad, and um, and sad that I was not there when I could have taken your class because I, you know, I, I have this dream to this day when I have the nightmare about missing the final and that I never went to class, it's always Russian history with Razanovsky. But I suspect that if I had been there when you were there, it might have been your class. <laughs> well, I can't say I've ever had someone miss my final exam, but those dreams or nightmares are alive and well. All right. Well, let's start with your work. And you're in the field of what we call organizational psychology. So how does that differ from regular psychology? And why were you drawn to that in the first place? Well, I I fell in love with psychology when I was in college. Uh, I I remember taking a, a writing class, actually, on social influence and just being riveted by Bob Cialdini's book, Influence, where he broke down, you know, all these ways that that people try to persuade us and manipulate us. And I I just I, I just loved it. I thought it was so interesting. And then I took Psych 1, and the book was assigned, and I was so interested that I read it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, nerd alert, right? But, you know, you, I, you can only sort of have so many experiences of people saying, wow, you're really passionate about this stuff, uh, you know, before it sort of hits you that you want to do something with it. But I didn't want to be a therapist. What What hooked me on psychology was that there's all this knowledge collecting dust in journals mm-hmm. that, you know, that could actually be used to, you know, to help us become more effective and to improve the quality of our lives. And so I wanted to, I wanted to make pr- sort of psychology practical for, for people and, you know, whatever they were doing. That's what I love about your work, that there's so many takeaways from it, that you can read it and you can come away with something that you can actually do in your life to make it to make it better for you or or for somebody else. Well, thank you. It you know, I, I really I didn't I didn't know that was going to be possible until my junior year I took an organizational psychology class and I had a professor Richard Hackman who never knew what he wanted to do with his life. 
and decided that he was just going to make a career out of studying all the jobs he thought he might want to have. So, you know, he wanted to be a pilot. He studied airline cockpit crews. He was, you know, at one point thinking about being uh, in a symphony. So he studied orchestras and, and how to help them play, you know, more beautiful music. He wanted to, you know, sort of protect uh, national security. He studied uh, the CIA and the NSA and how intelligence teams could collaborate better. And I just looked at that and I thought, what, what a cool job to fix other people's jobs. That's what I want. And that's where psychology really became practical for me because, yeah, I think it's one thing to say, we'll, we'll give people the, the knowledge to apply to their own lives individually. It's another to say, we all spend the majority of our waking hours at work and so many of us have jobs that are not meaningful and motivating. And if we could put this, this knowledge into practice, we can make work better for millions of people at scale. What drew you to your latest topic? What drew you to want to study originality? Well, I think there, there are a lot of things that, that got me interested in it. One was, was a personal experience of co-founding uh, what was Harvard's first online social network in <laughs> 1999. And then getting to campus and saying, we all know each other now. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd only built an email list of and like pre-frosh, uh-huh. you know, incoming freshmen because we were all afraid we wouldn't have any friends and we wanted to get to know people. And once we arrived, we knew each other. So we didn't need the online connection. And we, we literally ended it. And then Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, you know, five years later in the <laughs> dorm nearby. So, you know, you can't have that kind of experience without wondering, gee, why do so many people fail to act on their ideas? Uh, and then I, I also have just been fascinated by originality for a long time because I think it's it's the nonconformists, you know, the the people who are willing to challenge the status quo uh, and stand up for their their beliefs and ideas and values that drive most of the creativity and change in the world. And I wanted to know how we could all become a little bit more like them. What is interesting to me about this is this idea of becoming more like them. So I have learned through actually a lot of research that's been done at Penn and at Wharton that we can teach ourselves to become or at least learn how to become more optimistic, right, from Marty Seligman and more resilient from Karen Rivich. I never understood before diving into this that we could learn to become more original. So how do you do that? Well, I think the, the starting point is to say it's actually not something that you necessarily have to learn. It's, it's often more that you have to unlearn. What do you mean? Well, think about, Gene, you have kids, right? Oh, yeah. So think about your kids at five or six. Would you say they were creative? Yeah. Okay, so when, when did they lose their creativity? Um, I, I guess about the time. I don't know if they lost it. I mean, I think my kids are fairly creative, but I think they stopped having as much time for creativity when things like midterms and finals caught on. All right. So there's one insight. We, we know that, you know, that creativity requires some, some time and space to reflect. But I think the other thing that jumps out at me immediately is when, when we think about creativity, we, we put creative people on a pedestal, right? And we say, okay, you know, any, anybody who wants to be Da Vinci or Steve Jobs or, you know, name your favorite original thinker uh, is, is just in a different category from the rest of us. And the reality is, no, these, these people have, you know, pretty similar habits. And, you know, in some cases, they're habits we can adopt. So one is you could say, all right, one, one way that kids differ from adults is kids are willing to try out lots of ideas. You know, they, they don't get obsessed with one idea and just run with it, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're constantly sort of being willing to focus their attention you know, on, okay, an, an art project today, and then tomorrow I'm going to move into, you know, building a sculpture in my room, right? Uh, 
And I think too many, too many adults end up fixating on, I've got one idea or I have one solution to a problem. And we know that the creativity is, is not about generating a few high quality ideas. It's about generating a lot of ideas. I, I, was, I was actually stunned to discover that the most original people are the ones who have more bad ideas than their peers. Huh. So really, it's not a bad thing to be feeling like you're always throwing spaghetti against the wall and, and waiting for something to stick? Not at all. I mean, Shakespeare, if you look at Shakespeare's plays, you know, we, we celebrate Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. But if you look at what critics said, uh, if you look at um, Timon of Athens, for example, uh, or, uh, or uh, actually he had, he had four or five plays that he wrote around the same time as his, his greatest hits that are, are regarded as, as not great works. And, you know, that part of that is because, you know, being, being a great creator is, does not necessarily mean you have, you know, ev- that every idea is going to be great. And part of that is that you can't always judge your own ideas. And we see this over and over again in original thinkers, right? Picasso, over 20,000 works of art. Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart, uh, you know, 600, 700, 1,000 compositions. Uh, many, many more than, than most of their contemporaries. Uh, Edison, you know, of his uh, 1,093 patents, how many of them had any lasting impact on the world? Maybe six or seven. It's it's amazing. I, I mean, it sounds like to be original, you have to be also incredibly productive and prolific. Well, it helps, although there, there are definitely exceptions to that, too. And my, my favorite one is da Vinci. So, you know, da Vinci toiled for 16 years working on the Mona Lisa. And, you know, he was a serious procrastinator, right? He'd be, you know, working on this painting. And then he'd say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about you know, this experiment I want to do with, with optics. And he'd go off and, you know, and, and run his little experiments and get distracted. And he's like, guess we won't be doing any painting this year, uh, which is, you know, which is a problem, except that, you know, all that effort put into optics experiments changed the way that he modeled light as a painter and may have helped him become the Renaissance man. And I, you know, I think too often we, we avoid those kinds of divergence because we see them as unproductive when in fact, you know, they might be perfectly productive toward a different goal and sometimes serve, you know, a project that we're working on in ways we didn't anticipate. Let me just take a sec to remind everybody that Her Money and conversations like these are supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat, whether you are just entering the workforce, running a business, taking a break to raise a family, getting ready to retire. Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you are today and help you get where you want to go tomorrow. Discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. It's fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more about ideas in general. So I'm a writer. I've been a writer forever, it feels like. And for me, even when I'm hiring somebody, I'm looking for people who bring ideas to the table because ideas are pretty much our currency. They're they're the reason that we stay in business. One of the things that I learned from your book is that creative forecasting is the art of predicting the success of your ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think what you're saying is you need a filter to f- try to figure out at least which are the good ones. Yeah, and we're, we're not very good at that with our own ideas. So I have a, a former student, Justin Berg, who's now a Stanford professor, who studied Cirque du Soleil and you know, other kinds of circus artists. And he got them to submit videos of brand new acts that had never been seen before. 
And he had over 13,000 audience members watch them, rate them, and then they had a chance to donate their own money to them to see, you know, did you love this enough that you would actually pay for it? And he, he then knew which videos were hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had his own version of which ones took off on YouTube. And uh, he had different groups watch the videos and try to predict which ones would be successes. And the worst forecasters were the circus artists themselves judging their own videos. They were like, wow, this is, this is my video. How could it not be amazing? And you know they they were they just committed a ton of false positives because they they just couldn't help but fall in love with their own best work. And then he said, well maybe maybe we should go to managers because it's their job to decide which ideas live and which ones die. And the managers were almost as bad as the performers themselves, but for the opposite reason. Instead of being too positive, they were too negative. Uh, managers, you know, tended to be very risk averse. And the more different an idea was from what had worked in the past, the more likely they were to say, nope, it's weird, forget it. And so, you know, then, then he wanted to know, well, if I can't trust my own judgment, if I can't trust my boss, where do I go? And the data f- showed a third group was, was pretty good at predicting. It was creative peers judging each other's ideas. So, you know, if I'm a circus artist actually looking at a bunch of other circus artist videos, because I have some distance, right? I can mm-hmm. say... You know, Gene, that the time where you dressed up as a clown, don't do that. No one <laughs> likes clowns, which which was actually a data point in the study. Clowns are universally hated. I am not surprised. No surprise at all. But, uh, you know, along with that distance, the, the creative peers brought, you know, also some curiosity. And they were looking for reasons to say yes, as opposed to looking for reasons to say no. And they were a lot more willing than managers to, you know, to, to make a bet on something that was a little bit unusual. Can we use the same sort of filter to help us figure out which ideas might be profitable? I heard in your TED Talk when you you made a comment about the fact that your wife now handles your family investment decisions because you (laughs) passed on Warby Parker or investing in Warby Parker. Is that true, by the way? Yeah, it's true. Guilty as charged. So can we use it? Can we use the same methodology? Well, I think we can. And and Justin actually just finished uh, some new experiments, which showed how we can get better at judging our own ideas. So let, let's say you don't have you know, a bunch of peers who you think are experts or you know, whose insight you trust into you know, what idea is going to be profitable. He said, what you can do is you can take all the ideas that you're considering and you should have a list of at least 15 to 20 uh, anytime you're, you're pursuing an idea. Uh, if you go back to sort of the quantity rule, the data suggests even more is helpful. Uh, if you can go up to 40 or 50 or even 200, you've got a better shot at, at doing something that's original and profitable. But, you know, take your list, let's say it's 15 to 20, and rank them from your favorite to least favorite. And in the data, your most promising idea, you know, from a success or profit standpoint, is not your favorite idea. It's your second favorite idea. But it does turn out that a lot of originals, you say, they sort of play it safe and that a lot of risks are like stock portfolios. Yeah, you know, this this is one of the, the most liberating insights for me when I was when I was writing the book is I, I came away, you know, thinking, okay, I, I had this image of originals as as big risk takers, uh, you know, people who who leap before they look and are just willing to take on a degree of uncertainty that I would never be comfortable with in my own life. And what I came away with was this you know, very clear awareness that original thinkers don't like taking risks at all. And in fact, they may, they may be even more risk averse than their peers because, you know, if you think about the, the great innovators throughout history or even of our era, the last thing they want is to fail. Right? They, they, they like the idea of achieving their goals and they want to make sure they're successful. But 
they know they need to take some risks in order to achieve their most ambitious goals. And so what I what I heard over and over again was, you know, if you think about Bill Gates as a good example, you know, the story about Bill Gates is he dropped out of Harvard and, you know, sort of went for broke on this software company that became Microsoft. Mm-hmm. The reality of Bill Gates is he took a leave of absence from Harvard. <laughs> so, you know, he's got a safety net. He has funding from his parents. So, you know, he's he's not going bankrupt. And he already has a year of software sales under his belt before he leaves. So what he's done is, you know, he's he actually has kind of built a stock portfolio and that he says, all right, this investment in, you know, Microsoft is a little risky, but I have a bunch of mutual funds just in case. So essentially, if you are starting a business, for example, or if you're taking a big risk at work, maybe you're shifting careers, the idea is to try to balance it in other areas of your life? Yeah, I think it was... Um, yeah, Edwin Land at, at Polaroid, uh, the the founder, who said, you know, actually, you want to be as as structured and orderly and predictable and safe in your everyday life as you can, and that frees you up to be original in your work. I was struck by the fact that timing is important too, and that that it's often riskier to act early than it is to act late. I mean, we always worry, especially in these days when things are moving so fast, or at least they seem to be moving so fast, about being late to the party. So what did you learn about that? Well, I I was surprised by this, too, because I always thought that, you know, there's this big first mover advantage. And, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you want to be the one who, you know, who, who has the idea before anyone else. The last thing you ever want is to show up fashionably late to the party because, you know, then then somebody else has already gobbled up all the customers and dominated the market and patented their technology and, you know, benefited from all these network effects and you are screwed. Mm-hmm. But the, the data actually show that your failure rate is much higher if, you know, if you're a first mover than a fast follower. And, uh, you know, I think we, we see this all the time. We, ju- we just forget, you know, to, to look at the de- details. So, you know, Apple has never been first on anything they've ever created, right? They weren't the first personal computer. They weren't the first portable music player. Uh, they definitely were not the first uh, smartphone. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, Google was after an entire generation of search engines. Remember Ask Jeeves and AltaVista and Yahoo. Uh, Facebook was at least the third major social network after Friendster and MySpace. And the one that you invented in your dorm room at Harvard. <laughs> not even close, but... You know, we, we had a seed of the idea. Anyway, I, um, you know, I think what, what happens is when you're the first mover, uh, you, you end up having to, to rush ahead in order to get your idea out the door. And that often sacrifices, you know, careful planning and, and strategizing. But it also forces you to make specific investments. And you have to put all this work into creating a market. It's much easier than for somebody else to jump in and improve on your idea and capture that market. Well, sometimes when you're building the market, people are just not ready for it. Yeah, I think a lot of first, I think you're exactly right. A lot of first movers are, are just t- too far ahead of their time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, when you have an idea, you should just sit on it for an extra nine years and say, okay, I hope people are ready for it now. Because uh, that's, you know, that's a great way to become Polaroid, who, you know, did some of the earliest work on digital imaging uh, in 1981 and then waited until 1990 to release their perfect digital camera, which won all sorts of technical awards, but I think was something like number 37 on the market, and it was just too late. What I am saying is you shouldn't feel the pressure to be first. And you should recognize that, you know, often being second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth 
will actually give you the time to learn from what the first movers are doing and then, you know, kind of iterate and, and put something different and better out there. As somebody who does throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall, the other thing I'd like to eliminate is this fear of rejection. And and I think that's big, particularly for women. It, it's Maybe it's tougher to put ourselves out there because we're afraid that others won't like it or won't like us. How do you suggest dealing with that? I think I think you're right. I mean, the, the evidence shows very clearly that uh, men <laughs> men have these uh, sort of magical egos uh, that you know that create a force field, and you know very often it's women who you know who end up beating themselves up over rejection and ruminating, and men just bounce from failure to failure, thinking I'm great. Or worse, they fail up, which which makes me really angry. <laughs> it's so frustrating to watch, and you're right; it, it happens a lot uh, empirically. So, you know, I think the it, it's it's tricky, right? Because I, I don't want to end up mansplaining. Look, here's how you deal with rejection. But what I what I can tell you is what the evidence shows, and what I heard over and over again from some of the you know the innovators who who were able to overcome that fear. I think that. You know, as I as I talk to some of the the tech pioneers that I've looked up to the most, uh, so you know Larry Page, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, Mark Cuban, um, the list goes on and on. But one of the themes that they all stressed was, you know, I, I would ask them, you know, weren't you afraid? And they all had different stories about why they were afraid of getting rejected, right? Elon Musk went to Russia and tried to buy rockets and they laughed at him and said, ha ha, you internet payment guy, you can't go into space. And they literally wouldn't sell to him. Came back incredibly discouraged. Um, you know, Larry and Sergey were so hesitant about Google that they tried to sell it for about a million dollars. Wow. You know, which <laughs> hard to believe looking back, but they tried to sell it so they could carry on with grad school and, you know, finish their PhDs. And, you know, I think ev- everyone was was afraid of leaping at one point or another. But what they all did was they were all really good at mental time travel. And I think this is something that we could all master. So one of the great things about your brain is that it's a time machine, mm-hmm. right? It allows you to, to travel back into the past and forward into the future and, and look at yourself from different vantage points. And what they tended to do was they, f- they, would, they would hit fast forward and they would say, okay, right now, you know, my biggest fear might be rejection or embarrassment. But in the long run, what am I going to regret more, failing or failing to try? And it's so clear when you look at it, you know, 20, 30 years down the road with the, you know, the benefit of perspective to say, all right, you know, yeah, I probably, I probably won't be that upset if I, you know, if I tried my idea and I got shot down, I'm really going to be upset if I never gave it a shot in the first place. I know exactly how that feels. Um, and I, I want to thank you for a fascinating conversation. I think there's so much that we can all take from your work. But before I let you go, you got to tell us a little bit about your new podcast. Oh, thank you, Gene. That's so kind of you. Uh, well, I, uh, I got contacted by the TED team about a year ago. Uh, and the, the question was, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And I said, well, what I've always wanted to do is I get to go into all these interesting organizations that, you know, invite me in to try to figure out how to make work suck a little bit less. <laughs> and what I've always wanted to do is invite myself in to different workplaces that are unconventional and go to the extreme on something that I want everyone to, to master and then share what we learn. And they said, great, let's do it. So it's called Work Life. Uh, first episode just came out. Uh, I went to Bridgewater and uh, talked with Ray Dalio and others on how to really get good at hearing criticism. 
And then uh, in other episodes, I go in the Daily Show writer's room to look at group creativity under pressure. Uh, we go to an underdog basketball team to figure out how a culture of humility helps to, to build and sustain success. Uh, we have a crew of astronauts trying to build trust uh, to stay alive on the space station. And uh, it's been a total blast to go into these places and uh, really find out what makes them tick and how we can use that knowledge to make all of our work lives better. Well, we will absolutely be listening, and I am sure that a lot of our listeners will come along for the ride. Thanks so much for doing this with me today. Oh, thank you. It was uh, it was a real treat to be here. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. That was fun. So much fun. He's really smart. So smart. You know, his Facebook story reminded me, have I ever told you my Spanx story? No. So... Years ago, I interviewed Sarah Blakely for my radio show on Sirius XM on Oprah and Friends, and she told the genesis of Spanx, which was that she had a pair of white pants that did not fit, and or maybe they fit, but she didn't like the way they looked. White pants are so tricky. They are so hard. Arguably the most difficult piece of clothing for women to perfect. But she had this pair of pantyhose that she put on. She cut the feet off. She put them on under her white pants. She thought she looked phenomenal, so phenomenal, in fact, that she had it made into a product. And then she took her white pants and her newly made Spanx into the um, restroom at Neiman Marcus with the buyer from the lingerie section and modeled it and got an order on the spot for these new Spanx. And it reminded me that when I was in college, and lacking, for whatever reason, a strapless bra, my go-to solution was to always cut the top off a pair of control top pantyhose. Did you know that that actually makes a fabulous strapless bra if you're ever in a pinch? No. Yes, I did that more than once, by the way. Whoa. But what I didn't do was... (laughs) decide I was brilliant and go have it made (laughs) and spend $5,000 putting it behind my idea and voila, starting a shapewear industry. That is such a cool story, but that's exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. So you you have to not only lay the breadcrumbs, you have to follow the breadcrumbs. All right. What do we have? Our first question this week is from Dunn. I'd like to ask your advice on how to introduce my two daughters to investing. I'm planning to set up brokerage accounts for them while they are still young, ages 20 and 12, and hoping that they will take over the accounts when they finish college and find jobs in their respective professions. I understand time is on their side and would like to take advantage of that. I'm thinking index funds. What are your thoughts on this? Any tax and school financial aid implications? Okay, so there are about three questions in here, and let's take them one by one. If what you want is to encourage your kids to become passionate investors, I think there are two ways to go about it, and it depends very much on your children. Buying index funds, nothing wrong with that. They are low cost. They're tax efficient. They're fairly easy. But they're also like a big pot of of so many things that it becomes nothing. And as we're trying to interest our children in investing, if you have a child who is motivated simply by the thought of making money and you sit down with them and you explain we're buying a share of this index fund, we're going to track it, we're going to watch it, I will help you – understand how it works and 
you will be able to allow this money to grow for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and that gets your child excited, I think that's great. I think for a bulk of the money that you plan on investing on behalf of this child, an index fund is great. I suspect, though, that allowing your child to help select a stock in a company they might be interested in that they can relate to for whatever reason. Maybe they like their products. Maybe they eat their food. Maybe they wear their clothes. Maybe they play their games. Pick that. Buy a single share of that. Track that. Go to that annual shareholder meeting if you're so inclined. That may be a better way to hook them which is not to say that I encourage everybody to be an individual stock picker as they grow up. I don't, and I don't do it for myself. But I I do think that feeling like they are a part owner of a company that they care about is really, really powerful. And I know my friend Lisa, the rabbi, who I've talked about on this podcast before. Rabbi Lisa. (laughs) Rabbi Lisa has three kids, and they are shareholders in Mondelez. Noah, right? Noah is a shareholder in Mondelez. Um, The former CEO is a friend of the family. She got a share at one point in her life. I believe it was for a birthday or something like that. She went to the shareholder meeting, which happened to be where they live in Chicago, it was very meaningful to her. She asked a question at the shareholder meeting. That's so so cool. very, very cool. As far as the financial aid and tax implications, having assets in your child's name will impact financial aid more than having assets in a 529 account. Approximately 30% of your child's assets are expected to be contributed to college each year. When it comes to money in a 529, it's about 5 to 6%. So if you're thinking you're going to build a substantial nest egg in this account, you should know, yes, it will affect financial aid. And you said something that stuck with me. If you have children who like making money or want to make money, and we talked a lot about entrepreneurship with Adam Grant, and my question is back to you, if our, if a child isn't showing that he or she is interested in wanting to make money, is that something we should also start to work on with the child in addition to investing the money? I think encouraging a child to work and allowing a child to have control over some money mm-hmm. is is important. I mean, I believe this is why we give allowance. We give allowance right. and we do it with no strings attached because we want our children to learn how to manage money. And the only way many can learn to manage money is by having money. Having investments is different than having money. It's less about budgeting and more about putting your money to work and maybe doing some fundamental research on a company and figuring out is this company likely to be successful three, five, ten years in the future. That's a different, different lesson. It's a different lesson. Sure. An important lesson, but but a different lesson. Yeah. Okay. And we'll do one more from Kai. She writes, Hi, Jean and Kelly. My boyfriend is in the process of buying a home. I am very excited for him, and I will be moving in with him when he finds a place. We have been together for about three years, and though we've talked about our future together and long-term plans, neither of us are ready to buy the house together. His family is helping him with the down payment. I have started to save up so that I can buy my own house someday, too, but my family is in no position to help me with the down payment. 
I've seen other couples get burned in these kind of situations. One person owns the house, but both people put time, money, and energy into making it a home. But when the relationship doesn't work out, one person is left without anything to show for their work. My strong, independent, feminist self is worried about letting the man in life buy the house and being at a disadvantage if things don't work out. My boyfriend has proposed that we could consider part of my rent as an investment, and if things don't work out, he will buy me out and I will get some money back. What do you think? Do you have any other suggestions on how to handle this situation. Uh-huh. Get it in writing. <laughs> right. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. You need a cohabitation agreement. You can get one from a lawyer. You can... Look, I think what he's proposing is terrific. And I think that absolutely what you contribute to the house, particularly if it's above what it would cost to rent your half of an apartment or if it's in the form of furnishings or whatever form it takes... That should be documented. It should be in your cohabitation agreement. And therefore, there will be no questions if you do break up about what happens financially. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the Sex and the City movie. And they all go to this auction of a woman who came home to the apartment that she had that was owned by her boyfriend and she was unceremoniously dumped and everything was out on the street and she was therefore auctioning off all the stuff that he ever bought for her. But that's it's exactly what you're talking about. And I've heard this with my friends too or who are, you know, more often than not moving in with their significant others when it's just a way to save money. Mm-hmm. And they don't think of like long term having nothing to show for while living together. Right. And it's not just the house. It's the furniture. It's the dog. It's the, I mean, there are a lot of, as you build a life together, a marriage certificate is a legal document. Mm -hmm. And without that, you don't have that to back you up. And so essentially, you're just giving that to yourself. Cohabitation agreement. There you go. Good luck. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. And today in our Thrive segment, have you let your bargain guard down. We've got some new research from McKinsey and Company, and it shows that Americans aren't as concerned with being thrifty as we were a few years ago. And that makes sense. The economy is doing better. Wages are up. But the way in which we've let our guard down is really interesting. Turns out that once we find a retailer we think is less expensive overall, we stop paying attention to prices and we start spending more freely. And much of this freer spending is happening online. The problem with that strategy is that it doesn't always work. Online retailers, many of them, will show you their best-selling products, their best-selling air conditioner, their best-selling dog leashes, whatever you happen to be searching for, but not necessarily their least expensive ones. And the most popular ones, again, not the cheapest ones, often end up at the top of the page. Just a little tidbit to keep in mind when you're running this week's errands. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Adam Grant for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. And our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Dr. Meg Jay, author of The Defining Decade. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.